everybody welcome back to jailhouse talk i am andrew shoemaker on the show today as always will be rob thomason and also our guest chris leong we will be finishing up part two of girls 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 so without further ado let's just get right back into it love about Elvis in this movie is his relationship with these immigrant families right like his adoptive parents mama and papa and the youngs over on Paradise Cove who were what Chen's parents Mm -hmm. Chen's parents yeah at first I was wondering I even wrote a note about it are native peoples or people of different cultures in this movie more spectacle because it felt like it at the beginning and then it's very much not that way he actually like goes and spends time stays with them in a way that blue hawaii was was more spectacle we can talk about when we come to it but the whole end scene where that's where it's more like spectacle and Mm -hmm. prop and like look at all these different women from all these cultures around the world kind of a thing but even though i mean because this next scene right is he takes laurel and they go visit the young family for a whole day and i i do love to see this is great and it's it's just always slightly cringy where it's like the heart of it is really good right Mm -hmm. it's him like you said spending time and being in this community and treating them as equals and loving and respecting them but then it's like oh then there's some jokes that are like ooh, mm. do we need to make a fortune cookie joke Ooh, yeah do we really need to speak broken english and ooh, there's some stereotypes in here that are not cool and stuff like that but it is heartening that it like it all has a overall i don't know it has a good intent there i guess but it is rough in moments I definitely felt the cringe at some of the uh, stereotypes and the jokes that they had made, but I mean, I've I've seen worse. So I was like, okay, well, you know, they 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 went, they didn't they didn't take it as far as I've seen it in maybe like Blue Hawaii with the ping pong. So that's great. And then when he um, takes um, an instrument and starts singing a melody. That sounds as if it's of Asian origin. Yeah, I was really scared he was going to start start saying some very unokay things <laughs> to start out the song. But then but then the two little girls come in and they start singing and we were just like, oh, man, thank goodness for those little girls. <laughs> Earth boy dream of angel. Make him have a happy heart. In land of love. Angel dream of Earth Boy. In land of love. Happy Angel is you. Happy Earth Boy is me. It's actually 
a really sweet scene. It, it was, was very sweet. I really enjoyed it. Again, it's very important to note that this is like one of America's greatest icons showing that he gets by because of immigrant families. Like he is a part of a community with these different people and they He all, relies on them. Yeah, like I think that's huge. And even at the end of the movie, he runs to them when he is like in personal distress as well. Like they mm -hmm. are the ones who take care of him. Yeah, it was yeah, interesting. They are his extended family. Both both families, the Youngs and the and the mama and papa. Ken Young and Madam Young, the parents, both have really cool stories because Ken Young is played by Benson Fong who is California native, grew up uh, the son of like a wealthy Sacramento merchant, and they lost everything when the Depression hit. And he wasn't planning on becoming an actor. He just wanted to open a grocery store and be able to just provide for his family. But one night he was out at dinner, and a talent scout approached him. And at 33, he just started a career as an actor. Wow. But he's most well-known probably for his uh, role as Tommy Chan in the Charlie Chan movie series of the 40s. And he was also then in Flower Drum Song, Our Man Flint, Love Bug. Interesting. But then uh, even cooler is Madame Young, played by Buola Kuo, who, again, also born in California to a Chinese-American family, got her degree in social welfare from Berkeley and then had a master's in the University of Chicago. And while she was a professor of sociology at a community college here in L.A., she was found by a director who was just looking for an Asian dialect coach. Uh, but he instead ended up hiring her for a role in Love is Many, Splendored Thing. And so she'd go on to, again, be in more than 100 TV and movie wow. roles over the next 50 years. And in 1965, she, along with eight other Asian-American actors, including Guy Lee, who plays Chen in the movie, they formed the East-West Players, which is the first Asian-American repertory theater in the U.S., which is still operating today out of the Union Center for the Arts in Little Tokyo. Yeah. She was a huge force during this time for Asian-American visibility in Hollywood. And getting roles for Asian Americans. Which is really yeah, cool. that's awesome. That's but awesome. But again, it, it, the, knowing that about their backstory also makes it hurt that much more that they make them kind of speak in slightly broken English as well. When mm -hmm. I've like I've gone, I've seen interviews with them, and they speak perfect. They're English, Americans. You know? yeah. 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 You're not married, are you? Almost. Is that what you're running away from? Yes. Let's not talk anymore. You still love him? He didn't love me. I didn't ask you that. I was hurt. The whole thing was such a lie. What about him? That's when my father brought me here from Chicago. It's over with, but I'm just not all together yet. You're together enough for me. I couldn't stand being fooled again. It's me, and it is real, isn't it? Laurel and Ross stay with the Youngs that night. They go outside to watch the rain, and Laurel reveals that she was already heartbroken before. So it kind of sets up this like fear she has that Ross is going to kind of do the same thing, possibly. The next day, we're back at the docks, and Papa tells Ross that Wes bought the entire fleet of boats. Ross is obviously super pissed. He does not like this guy already. So he goes in to Ross's office where he, as every time we see him, is just slugging back a double. Or something. Yeah, he's a lush for sure. <laughs> and take a shot because Elvis refuses a drink in this scene as well as other scenes. He basically works out a deal with Ross to work until he can basically buy the boat. And in order to make even more money, 
he decides it's finally time to commit to moonlighting at the club as well and get some more money on the side, which is when we go see him perform Return to Sender in the club in that sleek black suit. I gave a letter to the postman. He put it in his sack. Bright and early next morning, he brought my letter back. She wrote upon it, Return to Sender. Address unknown No such number No such zone We had a quarrel A lover's spat I write I'm sorry But my letter keeps coming back But he was supposed to have a date that night with Laurel and he's so popular at the club that the club owner wants him to keep performing a few songs so he doesn't show up for his date laurel goes over to the club sees him performing and gets angry that he just bailed on her to perform i don't know if it was like also it was that robin was there or something i wasn't really sure why she was so angry i'm sure it didn't help at all but she leaves and then it's that weird like time jump thing where she leaves in anger and then he finishes a whole musical number and then he runs out the door and she's like two feet from the door <laughs> like storming away but has apparently been in like a time warp for like two minutes straight and they resolve and of course they're going to go on another date and everything's going to be fine but then we roll into possibly my favorite scene of the entire movie when we get Captain Ross Carpenter and his boys out on the big old tuna boat and he's in his whole all black captain suit and they sing a legit sea shanty thanks to the rolling sea. Living is good and living is fine. We're happy as we can be. We owe all this to this all divine. Thanks to the rolling sea. Thanks to the rolling sea. Work all day, but our hearts are gay. And while we work, we sing. Mighty sea is good to us, and we've got everything. And this made me oh, so yeah, yeah, yeah. happy. Rob loved that scene. Yeah, it was it was by far the best song. I, and I like turned to Crease and I was like, this is just a straight up sea shanty. Like this isn't even an Elvis song. <laughs> I mean, it is. It's not really popified that much at it all. It was rad. Unfortunately, despite the lovely shanty it does nothing to lure the fish in because all they end up doing is cutting the net in the propeller by accident and ruining the entire trip your cut's 23 dollars. so figuring 110 for a new section you owe me 87 dollars. hey mr johnson do yourself a favor don't go without food or water until you get it you scream for a percentage now profit not loss so where's the profit next trip if i make a next trip I got 20 bucks, as you will. It's a bet. I'll show you what kind of a guy I am. We'll call it square. I'll take a beating on the net. Not good enough. $23 and you pay for your own net. No dice. All right. You owe me $20 on your bet because I'm through. Five, 10, 15, 20. Skipper. 21, 22, 23. You're a rough beginner. Oh, I'm learning from you, Pops. I'm learning from you. Laurel also has negotiated herself into a new work situation as she is now a hat salesman in this odd little interlude where we go visit her hat store and we see frumpy old women bickering over hats. A shift that she leaves early and just walks out on the job because when Elvis shows up, all responsibilities fly out the window. 
uh, unfortunately, well, she tries to cook for him and nearly sets her apartment completely ablaze. Mm-hmm. After Elvis saves dinner, we go right into The Walls Have Ears, which is which is a really cool tango number, great song, cool choreography. They're listening to neighbors fight or make love, you can't really tell. He hits the wall and then it knocks back. When they knock back, all the all the pictures and stuff wobble and then they get knocked on from the other side because they're making noise and then from the floor. So the whole apartment is like shaking and they decide to, as a way to like to get back at these people, they're going to do this awesome tap dancing number while <laughs> different sections of the apartment are shaking and wobbling. It's, it's really great. Walls have ears, ears that hear each little sound you make. Every time you stamp, throw a lamp, and every cup and dish you break. But they can't hear a kiss or two arms that hold you tight. So come on, baby, don't fight tonight. The walls have this is like probably one of my favorite musical numbers, just as a number in the movie that we've seen so far. This is the first time it feels like mm-hmm. a real musical, yeah. right? Because it's the choreographed dance and like it's, it actually makes sense to the story that's going on and the situation therein. It's tied into that place. But did you guys notice the raging erection that Elvis has <laughs> no. during this scene? No. Well, you're missing out. <laughs> I'm going to look at it me, right. We're going to look at it right let now. Let me tell you. Let me tell you. So he got these pants for the scene, right? Costuming gave him these tight leather pants. Elvis never wore underwear. He hated wearing underwear. So he's just wearing leather pants straight up. And he told he told his boys, he's like, they're rubbing me the wrong way. I don't know. It's something I'm getting. It's like, you know, it doesn't feel quite did right. You, did you do research on this? Oh, yes. This isn't research. This is documented. <laughs> this is in my Elvis books. Okay. We're looking at it right now. So he told them it's rubbing him the wrong way. I, I don't feel comfortable. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. But he powers through. He's too embarrassed to say anything to costuming. They get on set. They do the dance. And amidst all the jiggling and wriggling, he is fully erect by the time the, the all dance right, we're is gonna, shot. We're jumping to the and dance right now. We got we to. Gotta... Ooh, I see it. Oh, I, I see it in the thumbnail. <laughs> it is so clear. It is so clear and blatant. But they didn't. he didn't want to say anything. He was so embarrassed. And he was like, they got to cut it, right? They'll have to cut it. They'll just see it. They'll cut it. And they didn't do anything. Didn't reshoot it. Didn't do anything. They could have kind of gotten around it, too, because the clothes are so dark that when he's facing you, you don't see it. Like, I don't see it at all for most it's re- of it. It's really when they're both parallel. Yeah. It's really when they're facing yep. each other. And you're there, like, comes. parallel to the perpendicular to it's the camera that, that bad, you see it. Honestly, for most. There it is. There it is. It's when yep. he, like, shifts, shifts his hips. A 1 11 35 is the timestamp. Oh, yeah. That's <laughs> the one where yeah. it's most noticeable. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know. I mean, it's natural. It happens. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those cases where he was just trying to be a professional, and then it just looks uh, a little unprofessional. <laughs> it's but, not his fault. You know, what, what, what's she gonna do? What you gonna do? Can't fix that in post at this yeah. time. Yeah. So. Well, you know, um, I have edited a few love scenes in my day. Um, I, I, I remember one comment made by an actor uh, who, before, before they started shooting the scene. And he apologized beforehand whether or not he pops a boner. Like, I apologize if I do, and I also apologize if I don't. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty funny. Well, hello. You're Mr. Johnson, aren't you? If I'm not, I'm stealing his liquor. Bloody Mary? Laurel Dodge. Well, come in and close the door. 
Won't you join me in my sad and solitary vice? I'm touched, Mr. Johnson. But I'm here on business. Oh, in that case, I'll have this later. Sit down. I'm better on my feet. I'm told it's a must in dealing with you. Flattery will get you everywhere. I doubt it. I'd like to buy the sailboat. A lot of people would. They come here and talk about it every morning. I'm here this morning. It's $10,000, Miss... Uh... Dodge, like in Detroit. <laughs> you don't have to club me. I'm reading you. 10000 is too much. Probably, but that's the price. I know what you paid. Everybody on the waterfront knows what I paid. You have to want a buyer more than I want a seller. Laurel, after this date, they, they're, they're really starting to click now. And she clearly sees a future with him because she goes up to brazen alcoholic and sexual harasser Wesley and attempts to buy the West Wind for an exorbitant fee of $10,000. And she, she gets the money. This is when it's revealed that she's the heiress of the Dodge Motor Company, I assume, because she, she reveals her last name is Dodge and that she calls her daddy and asks him to wire her just like the last two grand or whatever to be able to buy this boat. Unbeknownst to Ross at this time, he and the boys are hauling in a killer load of tuna. They are just like, oh, put a stick, touch the water, fish on the end of it, pull yeah. it in. But it's over <laughs> and over and over. Yeah. I just want to be one of the PAs below the boat that is just chucking those fish at them, basically. Because it's, it's, it's literally just like, here, hold out a bucket, all the fish you can handle. <laughs> then he gets back after they get all that tuna. And again... Mr. Johnson is trying to cut him out of his full pay. He creates this sliding scale fee where he's like, the more you bring in, the less your percentage is, which they didn't negotiate. Yeah, I mean, I might have run the math earlier on some other stuff, but this is one where I was like, I can't even follow what the business proposition is here. It's just a fake It's too convoluted. Yeah, Elvis literally punches his boss in the face and then negotiates with him. And the guy's like, you drive a hard bargain, kid. He still has money and a job. But this is when he also figures out that the West Wind has been purchased. And he, he takes his last money that Mr. Johnson gives him. He goes furious to his date with Laurel. At which point Laurel reveals, because she can see how torn up he is about the boat, that she's actually the one who bought the boat and she bought it for him. I bought the West Wind, Ross. Where are you going? I don't know. I'm going with you. Done. Look, when I was a kid after my father died, I lived on what other people gave me. Clothes that other kids that I'd grown and didn't fit me. Toys had been broken and thrown out. I even got to where I thought the food I ate was given to me because someone had finished with it. I understand, No, you Ross. don't understand. You can't understand, and you never will. A man has to work for what he wants. I have a right to do this for you, Ross. I love you. I don't take handouts from anybody. I don't want to be kept. And at this point, he runs off to Paradise Cove to stay with the youngs. Because now he doesn't have a place to live. Laurel wants to chase after him, but unfortunately, she does not know how to drive a boat. Drive a boat? Steer a boat? Pilot a boat? Sail? Sail a boat? Sail a boat. There we go. That's the one. Uh, So the only person that she has left that can do it, unfortunately, is Wesley. Creepy, creepy Wesley. Creepy Wesley Mr. Johnson. Fortunately, Chen is out fishing because he spots him trying to feel her up as much as Wesley possibly can out on the sea. Yeah, he's straight assaulting it, her. It, it's pretty blatant. And he brings up Ross, and he and Chen's like, you got to get out here. You got you to gotta take care of this. It's not cool. And then proceeds 
the greatest action sequence in an Elvis movie, <laughs> where they roll up on this little dinghy. They're in like a motorized like John boat. Elvis is standing on the bow, rope in hand, and it is just it's action on the high seas because of a, a leap across. He boards the boat, knocks him out immediately, even though Wesley's got a smile on his face, grabs Laurel. But the thing is, as they are escaping, I know, dude, it looks like they legitimately for whatever reason because okay so they are little dinghies on the left side and if the big boat's on the right side they try to go up and cut right around the front of the boat versus taking any other direction in this wide open ocean and they nearly get legitimately crushed underneath the it front looks of the like sailboat it's a stunt gone wrong i mean it's all stunt people in this scene you can if you look it's very obvious it's not the original actors but yeah like the the john boat takes a right right in front of the bow bows the front right it takes a cut right in front of the bow of the ship and the the guy in the back with the motor looks like he's crushed and they cut away like right before the boat like seemingly just knocks him out it, it seems it seems like it was like a half second away from capturing like someone's death on film because it it was like really legitimately did you dangerous. find anything about like if anything happened on set or no, I, I didn't see anything. I mean, I had to assume there's no way that that was an intentional stunt. Mm-mm. It must have just happened. And they just were like, okay, nobody got hurt. So, haha, we'll just keep going on. No one's going to get sued and we'll put it in the movie. Actually, I was legitimately scared for a moment that they were going to get crushed. Yeah. Fortunately, though, in the movie world, they're just fine and nothing happens. And they cut back to the boat. <laughs> they get back to the Young's house and... um. And then the Youngs throw a party. Ross and Laurel agree to get married because no, no good, no good romance can end without a marriage. And we have then just this worldwide smorgasbord reprise of girls, girls, <laughs> girls with, with a variety of women. It starts out with just the well, two, the yeah, two little girls and we another boy. We were confused boy. because we, you could see like it, it first, like dollies through, and there's these girls in kimonos, and Chris was like, I don't think that's traditional Chinese yeah. that they're wearing. Like, what's the deal here and then she's like and this woman in the background looks spanish and it's like then we were like oh once they start the musical number we're like oh okay oh yes it's just an appreciation of women from all over the world including from the philippines girls from tahiti girls from samoa girls wearing skirts made of grass yeah 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 girls. i'm in silken beauty girls. i still can cute it it's just an Epcot parade of nations as Elvis wiggles his way through all the ladies and you know and the musical style changes as they go along and all that kind of stuff it doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the movie no. they were like we need to market this movie as having hot girls so we'll have a scene in the beginning where there's hot girls scene at the end where there's hot girls from everywhere and then we can have that movie in the middle the thing I appreciate about that ending scene, that ending number, is the representation of Filipino culture, which I have never seen in a movie um, from that time. So that's like the earliest representation of Filipinos, I feel like, that I've seen in in the in Hollywood movie. So I was very excited about that. Elvis movie, surpri- they surprise us and they don't surprise us every time, right? And I, I think that's honestly why this might be one of my favorite Elvis movies so far because it gets the humor right. There's a lot of great songs. There's a lot of great characters. There's good intent. I, we don't care about the story, but we never really care about the story in these movies unless it's like Flaming Star or something like that. 
and coming into it, I just want to enjoy these movies when I'm watching them, right? And I really enjoyed watching this movie from beginning to end. It was my, I think I was the most immersed in just enjoying where I was than any other movie. I, I agree. And I think this movie was everything Follow That Dream wished it was, because Follow That Dream wants mm-hmm. to be this romp, you know, the whole time that's just fun and goofy and uh, kind of farcical. And this is this does feel like this romp through all these experiences. It's a little slapsticky, but it's not super lowbrow humor. It's just good situational comedy. So I, I had a great time with this one. Yeah, I enjoyed it as well. I only recently had watched Hard Day's Night, the Beatles' first movie, for the first time. It was just it was just so wildly different. And so much fresher and felt like completely out of a different time, even though that movie is only two years later from from this movie. As a big Beatles fan, Chris, I don't know, how, how do you think about the comparison between those artists and how they use their music in the movies versus kind of how Elvis, again, maybe he doesn't have as much creative control over that kind of thing as the Beatles did. But I don't know, just do you have any thoughts about the comparison between those two? I never compare the Beatles and Elvis. They're two different genres of music, even though they're from the same time. And like you were saying, like the Elvis movies are a completely different thing. Um, the Beatles movies were just like extended music videos, right? And they just kind of, kind of did whatever they wanted to do creatively. Like it was, it was, it was their thing. Whereas like the Elvis movies wasn't entirely his thing. It was a big like marketing tool for Elvis. It was basically the people behind the movie, the people behind his record label, right, that wanted him to make these movies mm-hmm. to make them more money. The the music in Hard Day's Night is all their own. Is it's all the Beatles. Yeah, and it's important though to note as well that the entire world, but especially the Western world and America go through a huge shift in these next few years because this is right when Vietnam's starting to bubble up, but it hasn't really hit the cultural consciousness yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that happens in these next like two years. Mm-hmm. It starts to explode and every you know, coming up is is everything Vietnam, Cold War, Cuban Missile Crisis, JFK assassination. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see what Elvis movies are like are they like oh this is the refuge of good times and they don't change at all or do they shift uh, in any way I'm guessing it's the it's gonna be the former that's sort of more the reason I think that I brought up the Beatles as a comparison is that Elvis kind of seems to represent the new version of old Hollywood right this is he's being put into a format and a standard that was established with like cowboy movies and these kinds of like simple musicals that are vehicles for a star and like you said making money Whereas the Beatles work, especially as it moves into like, you know, Yellow Submarine and some of the trippier kind of stuff is Mm -hmm. much more about the art and the artist rather than the product. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I do, I I totally get what you're saying where they, they aren't, I don't know, they have this weird space where they occupy just because they're existing at the same time. They seem to represent almost polar opposites, even though they hold like there, there, I'm sure there are plenty of fans who equally love the Beatles and love Elvis and the Beatles were heavily influenced by Elvis and Elvis appreciated the Beatles and all this kind of stuff. But it is interesting that like this point at which they are kind of crossing over in terms of cultural exchange is where Elvis is artistically at least viewed on the decline as they are on the rise, even though they kind of 
they have similar inflection points, but take it in such different directions that for Elvis stifles his creativity. But the Beatles seem to be a cool avenue and a medium that opens them up to a different form of creativity. Well, you're going to see this a lot in in just the medium of film, too, because the new American cinema is going to start exploding. This is just that time period where all across the world people started to detest the old in a lot of ways and criticize the old and really try and explore the new. And and have authentic creative control over their own products. Because Elvis is just a product of a huge system, whereas the Beatles have, I mean, they had control over everything that they not forget that like my boy george harrison's gonna like have terry gilliam and the monty python boys (laughs) on his side so the weird the weird levels that are the power that's happening over on that that camp is gonna you can't defeat it it's just too funky elvis is like the last kind of vestige of the he is the bridge between the old and the new to me i think is what i've come to like kind of think about him as is he is that point right in the middle where He's using the old format to appeal to a new audience, which is teenagers, and then that new audience will now branch out and grow up with artists like the Beatles and the Stones and all these other artists who are more about trying to find an authentic representation of art and meaning versus just something to be consumed. Yeah, and it's like that idea where if you look at these Elvis movies and you're just like, they're garbage, they're not worth watching, there's nothing important in it, that's like the person thinking they're too cool for Jimi Hendrix. It's like, and and then saying they like rock and roll. Like, this isn't an essential piece of the collection of art that eventually becomes the things you like. And I, I agree. I think Elvis is definitely this interesting transitional artist, especially right now. In, in the early 60s. You can't say that Elvis had no critical acclaim for these movies, though, because this one was actually nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Musical. Mm. Not that that necessarily means anything, but along with Music Man and Jumbo and the Wonderful World of the Brothers Grimm, it was nominated. So, Oh, I loved Music Man. I noticed a little conspiracy, because on Wikipedia and IMDb, it says it was nominated. Uh-huh. But I went on the Golden Globes website, and it seems to have been scrubbed from the records. Uh-huh. It only shows the other two movies as nominees, and Girls, girls, girls is nowhere to be found. It's the deep state, dude. It's it's in every part of our lives, you know. I sat through these conspiracy just, theories. And even Elvis I, I, I've been patient, but now you know what? I'm starting to listen. Also, as as we've seen again, prevalent theme in Elvis's life: drug use. Just really into opiates at this time. Dexedrine, Benzedrine, Secondal, Demerol, Dilaudid. He had a attaché case that he carried around and shared with cast and crew. Wow. Uh, just full of pills. <laughs> a co-star Sheesh. called it a potpourri of drugs filled with old yellers, speed, and God knows what else. Oh. He, it was just at this point, again, started from the army, just got progressively worse, where he was just he just had to take pills to function, basically. And he was getting uppers and downers and needed to sleep and needed the energy to get through the day and was just have such an insane schedule that it was like... He was just locked into the into drug use to a point where he just needed it to function. Uh, and he apparently got very adept at, like, charming doctors or pharmacists or faking injuries or illnesses to get the meds he needed at any time. So it's just... Well, he's Elvis. He could get whatever he wants. And he, and he doesn't seem that out of it or overweight or anything yet in this movie. So it seems like he's at that worst kind of addiction where he's just amazing at shielding it from people, yeah. too. And, and yeah, because there's, like, like, a lot of co-stars didn't even know never thought anything was wrong couldn't tell a difference uh but again it's it's gonna start to there'll be physical issues or illnesses it'll delay production stuff like that down the mm-hmm. road but he's still at the point where he's just chugging along what's uh what's his life like with priscilla at this point in time so after leaving germany in 1960 uh, it's been two years since he last saw priscilla and they've only called around 10 times talked on the phone about 10 times apparently and they've had they've exchanged some letters and stuff like that but now all of a sudden around the time of this 
movie being produced, he calls her out of the blue. She's 16 years old now. Elvis is 27. And he asks if she would come visit him in L.A. And her parents, the Blues, uh, they agreed on the terms there would be a two-week visit once school was out for the summer, that she would have a round-trip first-class ticket to Los Angeles, an itinerary of their plans, and some kind of chaperone. And those are their only stipulations. And Elvis's longtime girlfriend in the States, Anita Wood, who was kind of with him in and out throughout this whole time. And she, she kind of, she knew that he had flings and other stuff, but she was just, she was just kind of like the constant public facing girlfriend, but they had, they did have a good relationship and she kind of thought they'd be married at one point, but this Priscilla stuff ends up getting in the way because she happens across one of their letters, one of the letters between Elvis and Priscilla, uh, where they discuss the upcoming visit. And I'm going to read a excerpt here from baby. Let's play house, which is uh, Elvis Presley and the women who loved him by Alana Nash. There's a bit here. When, yes, when Anita finds this letter, she says, It took her breath away. Elvis had said, She's a friend. She means nothing. She's a fan. She faced him with it as soon as he got home. I said, What is this letter? Who is this this Priscilla? You said she was just a child. I was furious, and he was furious too because I had found it. Oh, he was so upset. He grabbed me and threw me up against the closet. Oof. I said, You're telling stories, and everything you said was a lie. I packed my bags and came home that night to Graceland, to Grandma. When she walked in the house, the phone was ringing. She didn't want to talk to him, but he kept calling. I remember when he got me on the phone. He said, Little, which was his nickname that he called her. Little, please don't tell anybody about this. This girl, again, she's just a child. She's just a 14-year-old child. It means absolutely nothing. She just wants to visit. And if you told anybody, I'd get in a lot of trouble. She's so young. (gasps) He just begged me, Little, Little, Little. I just couldn't imagine coming over to the United States. It didn't sound right to me. But I said, I won't tell anybody. And I never did. I never did tell anybody. So he knows exactly what he's doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Listen, we can have all the debates we want about age difference and different times and experience and whatever. At the end of the day, Elvis knows what he is doing is not right. And that's kind of all that matters, honestly, is that he clearly can tell this is an inappropriate relationship and he feels a need to hide it constantly. So I feel like that kind of <laughs> that's all kind of we need to say about it at that point, you know? For sure. Mm-hmm. But so yeah, so next time after he gets back from from filming uh, Girls, Girls, Girls is when she f- comes to LA, and they have a they have they take a trip together, and we'll talk about it next time. So oh man, the saga continues. Yeah, Crease, thank you so much for uh, being on the show this yeah. time. Yeah, this is fun. The next movie we have is It Happened at the World's Fair, nineteen sixty three. If you guys, again, want to send any questions or comments to us, you can email us at jailhousetalkpod at gmail.com or at jailhousetalkpod on Instagram. So for Andrew Shoemaker, Rob Thomason, Chris Leong, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.